This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When I wrote the book, I realized I was going to be exposing my entire family to something pretty horrific. And then I was like, okay, but it's not that this horrific situation isn't happening. I'm just the one being torn up inside out by this every day. All I'm doing is naming the pain. I'm not making something up here. I'm just saying this thing that you do when you support this virulent racist who is going to inevitably bring harm to me and my community and the grandson that you love more than anything in this world. When you do this, it breaks my heart. When I was writing that part of it, I remember saying to my husband, if I write this book, it's really going to hurt. Because if I write the truth, it's not a comfortable truth. And we finally got to this place where he was like, you're just going to have to tell your truth. And then we'll just have to deal with whatever the fallout is. My name is Mira Jacob, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. For AAPI Heritage Month, we wanted to share a mix of conversations that bring the Asian American experience to life in powerful ways. Even though we try to be more of an American podcast, featuring lots of minority voices for all our majority ears, sometimes we just got to lean into the Asian side of things. And as you already know by now, Raman can't help bring up his love of comics in every conversation he's a part of. I'll admit, I was always a little bit skeptical about his comics geekery. I used to think that comics were only about the superheroes and capes that we see in movies. But I've come to discover and appreciate they are so much more. A powerful storytelling medium just like TV and film. So this month, we wanted to do something special. Sharing some past conversations about some of the best Asian American comics and comic book creators out there. Honestly, getting to talk about and with creators whose works moved us is one of the perks of our show. Maybe you heard these before, or at least have heard us talking about them, but if you enjoy these conversations, please be sure to show your support by picking up their work wherever you get your favorite books. Got a suggestion for something we should check out? Email us at mom at modmypod. We'd love to hear from you. This week, we're actually going to pick up the pace with two episodes a week. First, we'll talk with the Asian American comics creator, and a few days later, we'll talk about the book in depth. So this week, our chat with Mira Jacob, creator of one of Remen's all-time favorite books, the graphic memoir, Good Talk. You've heard him talk about it more than a few times with guests, and I can also recommend it. Just bring some tissues as it might make you cry. Definitely made me cry. And in a few days, we'll air the quarantine comics chat that I shared with Remen and Ryan about the book itself. So let's jump right in for our chat with author and illustrator, Mira Jacob. 
Mira, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So Mira, you're kind of infamous, but before we get into that, I guess I have to ask a question that you've probably been asked your entire life. Where are you from? <laughs> really, yeah. where are you from? <laughs> I'm just, I've never heard that before. It's amazing when you grow up and you're like one of the first three Indian families in the state of New Mexico. No one ever asks you that question. So I grew up in New Mexico. My parents are from India and they had an arranged marriage in 1968 and then moved to New Mexico in 1969. So I lived my entire life there. Wow. Wow. And three families. I, we had 15, yeah. I think, in Alabama. <laughs> I mean, by the way, I should just be, I should be clear. This isn't according to like some national census. This is according to the other two Indian families who are like, you're third. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like the ones that you, like baby showers and birthday parties that you had attended and things like that, right? Exactly. The uncles and aunties. <laughs> no, we, had a new, we had a new family move to town when I was a teenager. By that point, they were probably 30. But when they moved from, I think, Pittsburgh, they went through the phone book and found someone with their same last name. And they called them. And they're like, hey, we're the Sings. Wow. <laughs> and turns out that other family, the Sings, came over to my house. And that's how I met my best friend. So there you go. That's amazing. That's oh, my really God. That's, that's the best. So Mira, when did you realize you were different from people around you? I think maybe... I don't remember, honestly, a time when I didn't know. I mean, maybe sort of like whatever you, whatever kind of ether you're swimming in when you're two. Yeah. Maybe, maybe around then <laughs> there was like, it was just like, I am human. Who knows? I might also be part dog. Anyway, <laughs> like, I think it was, I think because my mother was the kind of beautiful that is sort of uh, mind boggling. And and whenever she walked around, people would inevitably touch her or men would follow her and just say, where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? So I understood right away that we were not from the same place that everyone else was from. And I made sense of it the way that you do where I had heard her say, I'm from India. So I was like, oh, my house is India. <laughs> And all these other people, they live in Albuquerque. And so whenever we go out to the store, we are going from India into Albuquerque. And that's why they're asking where we're from. You know that weird like kid logic? Yeah. 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 My sister still doesn't, or not my sister, my daughter still doesn't understand like the difference between cities and countries and states. So they're all mixed up together I right mean, now. Do any of us really understand the difference? <laughs> I still don't get it. No, no. Like what makes this one street part of this county? And then when you cross the street, I'm somewhere else. I don't get it either. Exactly. <laughs> well, we so what were the kind of things that were different about like your home life from outside? Like as soon as the door shut, the smells came out, like the loud, like budgeons and religious music started blaring. But the minute the doorbell rang, like you could like feel the needle drop, like and everything stopped. Like, what were those like big differences between when the doors were closed and when the doors were open? Huh. I think it's probably food. Mm -hmm. It's, but I have to say, my mother really was very like strong Indian pride with the food. So it mm -hmm. never really stopped when the doors opened. It was sort of like, why don't you idiots like our food? You know, like it was, that, it was more <laughs> that. <laughs> I like your mom so much. Yeah, she's amazing. I remember once actually she brought shrimp curry to a church event. So my family is Syrian Christian, which mm -hmm. is a very old branch of Christianity in India. And my mom brought shrimp curry, saved up money to buy the shrimp, to bring it to the, the church picnic. And everybody, I just remember person after person 
pausing over her pot and wrinkling their nose and just turning away. Oh, <laughs> and it must I just have been so I disappointing. Know. Oh. I know, I know. It was really funny. It was, it was. I mean, it was not. I mean, it's funny now when she when yeah. she talks about it because she said, you know, and they said to me, "Why do you use so much of onions and garlic?" And I said, "What is wrong with you people?" <laughs> Why don't you? Yeah, why don't you? This is delicious. What's wrong exactly. with you guys? You're going to understand this much later, people. <laughs> That's great. We were like the only family that would go. We were the only, there was a Chinese grocery, there was no Indian grocery store growing up. We had to go to Atlanta to get to one. But mm-hmm. my mom would go to the Chinese grocery store. Yes, mine and too. We were like We were like the only non, non-Chinese non people who would show up in the store. And I was like, <laughs> oh, so we're Chinese? Like, <laughs> totally, totally. Partially. <laughs> oh my god that's so funny yeah that's exactly that's exactly we had we had talin in albuquerque which i think is still a thing which was and we all just went to talin that's where you would find anything that was vaguely spicy certain vegetables occasionally right. all the like, cilantro you could right, make all, those cilantro. Right. all the cilantro like occasionally yeah. some like some very orphaned looking jar of mango pickle would slide across you know what i mean it was just like <laughs> Right. Like coconut milk, cans yes. of those, things like that. I, I have to tell you, I did not know that dunya and cilantro were the same thing up until my 20s. Because <laughs> we never bought our cilantro from Winn-Dixie. We always got our dunya from the uh, Chinese store. So like in my 20s, when I decided I wanted to cook Indian food, I walk into like a Meyer, which is kind of like a Target meets Walmart store. And I'm like, where's the Dunya? And they're like looking at me like I'm a moron. And I'm like, you're the morons. <laughs> As I describe what I now know was cilantro. I wouldn't have known that. I wouldn't have known that. Also, I didn't know, you know, what is the other word that they use for cilantro sometimes? Ugh, what is it? There's cilantro and there's I know you just said Dunya, but there's another there's another way they they explain it. I am it. the wrong brown person no. to be asking this. Right. Coriander, right? Coriander. Oh, yeah, yeah. There you go. Oh, right. yeah. yes. Wait, that's a different yes. thing. Wait, yeah. that's yeah. the same thing. It's that the same the, thing. It's the same oh thing. God. Yes, yeah. I know. So I didn't know that until until much later. I just <laughs> learned that last week, actually. I took okay, a cooking class and they had a trivia question. And the question was, this spice is also known as cilantro. I'm like, what spice is also known as cilantro? What does that mean? And I'm like, coriander. Like, to me, that's a completely different thing. But I'm with you, Mira. What were some things you did back then to fit in? Ooh, okay. So I really went the route of, I mean, when I'm thinking about fitting in, fitting in to me, when I was younger, I think I was just such a deep, um, what, it's like sort of a word that no one uses anymore, but everyone um, called me a tomboy when I was younger because I had a real addiction to sort of baseball hats and baseball yeah. shirts and braids, two long braids. And I think I really just tried to, I was very sporty and I just tried to keep up with the boys and I changed my name to Tony when I was in fourth grade. Wow. You I'm just did. remembering wow. yeah, all the ways in which I tried to fit in. <laughs> yeah. I changed my name to Tony and told them I was Wait, how do you get to Tony? Like, uh, I don't know. Mira, I think that's really different. I think it was like, Angela's the boss. Come on. (laughs) I think I just was like, what is the most dudish name I can come up with? Because here's what was happening in, in football at recess, they were choosing boys that were definitely not as good as I was because they were boys. And so Mm -hmm. I told the fourth grade boys that I was actually a boy and my name was Tony and it worked. Like they started choosing me a little earlier because they're like oh no she's she's good that's tony she's fine she wears a hat it's, exactly. it's, it's okay. she's got to be he's good great. yeah he's, great. Exactly. he's got a mustache and braids no he's cool it's great but okay so do you i mean how are you different 
from that little girl who's got the braids and the obsession I know. with baseball jerseys. So I'm just thinking of the trajectory. So then then I think I went from that kind of that kind of girl. I think I had a brief moment in seventh grade when I transferred schools. The popular girls were these Baptist, oh my God, these Baptist girls who were horrific to me. And who believed um, in only evolution ever. And I just remember because my teacher that year was this guy who had transplanted from Brooklyn, Mike Nadler. (laughs) And Mike Nadler was talking to us about evolution. And one of the girls raised her hand and said, excuse me, Mr. Nadler, nobody here believes in evolution. And I didn't know that that was the rule. And so I raised my hand and I said, I totally believe in evolution. And she said (laughs) without like even pausing, she goes, well, Mary Jacob, maybe your people are related to monkeys, but mine aren't. Wow. So I was like, oh, no. So that was, and that was the the moment. I think I spent the rest of the year trying to crawl back from that moment, hmm. trying to not be the one who is related to monkeys. But that summer is when I discovered, I mean, a bunch of things at once, like Bauhaus and the Jesus and Mary chain and cigarettes and skateboarding. You know what I mean? Like all of the things at once. And so then I came back to eighth grade to just sort of be a bad kid. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. How did mom and dad feel about that? (laughs) Right. I mean, not great. Not great. I'll admit that. But I think it was more like when you just, and it's so funny because you can see it so clearly with teenagers in I mean it's just the the fronting is so much more clear in a way but we all do it as adults too it's just like you put on a uniform right yeah yeah so I put on like pounds of black eyeliner and like strange leather outfits and you know just like a permanent sort of scowl and and I think that was my way of being American and I remember when I would meet another Indian kid like me yeah oh because we were so rare we would like run off to a corner together to sort of Indian out together. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we'd be at yeah. some, what does that yeah. mean? What does Indian out mean like, in New Mexico? Some, we'd be at some t- terrible, terrible New Mexico club. There was one called the Big Apple. I can't believe I'm even saying this out loud. But anyway, there was a terrible club in New Mexico in Albuquerque called the Big Apple. And I would meet another Indian at that club. You're, and then, you're a teenager now or in your yeah, 20s? Yeah, teenager. Okay, okay, no, okay. no, no, teenager. And we would like run into the corner to basically to basically talk about like, oh my God, where are you from? Where are your parents from? Oh my God, do they do this? Do they do that? Like we would talk to each other <laughs> like the way that only other, you know what I mean? Like the way yeah. that only almost South Asians could to be like, are yeah. you weirded out by it? I'm so weirded out by it. And then the minute somebody would come back, we would be like, I just, whatever, man, I don't care. Yeah, you know, just the, like the super disaffected, like, I don't know, what's the big deal? Like, God, parents, America, like, you know what I mean? It just not, it wasn't about being Indian anymore. It was about being whatever that was like that some weird cross cross section of punk and goth that we were. There were two other Indian guys that lived in the same neighborhood. So we like ride our bikes to each other's houses because our, our parents would trusted the other parents and i had some of my best friends back then were white but like we would almost disown each other in school and like secretly be like oh yeah yeah okay i'll see you after school but i'm not talking to you right now but we'd ride the bus together and that was like our secret thing we'd ride the bus and we talk about pearl jam and x-men and stuff like that and there was this one cheerleader who once asked she's like are y'all brothers we're like uh no just like hanging out and then she's like well do y'all live together and we're like okay whatever (laughs) 
Oh my God. The mind wow. boggles. She's like, okay, but, but are y'all you... brown? <laughs> and why would you disown each other in school though? Because we're trying to fit in. Like, <laughs> I got, oh, I get it. I get it. Yeah, get we it. can't be it. the three, the three, yeah. the, the three yeah. amigos in school. I understand. That's not cool. It. Internalized so racial oppression. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so ma'am. Interesting. Because I'm a, I, Mira, I grew up in Chinatown. So, oh, wow. so my experience is completely opposite. And I can hear even having you on the show, like, like Raman, whenever, whenever we do have a guest where they grew up in a place where they are completely different from the people around them, there are just these unique experiences that when, when you're part of the, even though I'm a minority, I was part of a majority group in that community. It's what was that like? Can different... you tell me? I'm so, I'm so jealous. Was, I'm so tremendously yeah, jealous. I often tell people that I thought I was white until I was around white people, if that makes sense. Like, even though I was Asian and like, I knew that I had black hair and I felt like I was part of the mass culture. And so I would, I'd watch Full House and there'd be DJ Tanner and I totally wanted to be her. And I knew I didn't have blonde hair, but it was almost like, I just felt like I was like anybody else until I got to middle school where it was much more diverse. And there were people of different races that I finally kind of identified as being other, if that makes sense. Like I, I identified as being different from everyone else. It's fascinating. How did that feel? Like knowing, having kind of stumbling on it a little later, how did well, it feel? It's, it's interesting because the same things happen, right? So like cliques, I mean, it's junior high school, so everyone's super clicky, but the the cliques would form and there'd be the group of Chinese kids at one table and the group of black kids at another table and a group of Hispanic kids at a third table. So there were definitely different groups that associated based on race or culture, or it's really because we were riding the bus together as well. Everyone was getting picked up in Chinatown, getting bussed into this this other school in a different neighborhood. So you would bond with the people on the bus with you. But unlike Raman, I I would get to school and I would still keep hanging out with those people because those were the people that I knew. But like eventually later on in life, and Mira, I'm assuming this happened probably for you in your 20s or 30s when college starts, I would run into Indian kids who grew up in like these massive Indian communities. And I'm sure there were Chinese kids who grew up totally. in mass, you know, the Houston's, Atlanta's. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, when I was an undergrad and engineer, I actually co-opted in one of those towns and I hung out with some family friends from this other town, Huntsville, where tons of Indian families who all grew up together. And I could not gel with them because I was so used to kind of like fake it till I make it. Mm-hmm. And it was like the cool save by the bell Indian crowd. And there's a little bit of resentment. I'm over it now, like I hope. But like in my 20s, actually to this day when I'm in the city and I hang out with those friends at like a baby shower or something like, yeah, okay, that that's cool that you guys all went to that Indian convention together because they literally do that. Did, did you ever encounter like what, what was your relationship with the Indian crowd? Oh, it's so interesting. That is such a that's such a great question because I remember when I first came to New York in my early 20s. I remember like in New Mexico, there were so few South Asians when I was growing up. And certainly there's a much larger community now, but really in those like formative years where you begin to understand where you were, everybody there was an uncle, right? Like it didn't matter if they were Punjabi or, you know what I mean? It was just like, Mm -hmm. everybody is, you call everybody uncle. Everybody's an uncle. There are so few of us here. These are all your uncles. Great way to not have to remember any names for a long time. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) But then, and, but what was really hard for me when I first got to New York is that every taxi driver I would run into, every grocer, every doctor, everyone, every South Asian person I met, I was like, this is an uncle. And I was like, no, that's not an uncle. 
That is not an uncle. That person does not think that they are your uncle either. Nobody is an uncle in this situation. And I would have to tell myself that all the time. Because like, let's say you're going home with someone that you're really psyched about and they want to kiss you in the cab, but you're like, I can't. That's my uncle. Like, no, it's not your uncle. He doesn't care. He sees people kissing his cab all the time. Nobody's going to call your mother. Like, I just couldn't. The boundaries were so messed up and I didn't even realize it until I talked to one of my friends who grew up in New Jersey and I told her and she was like, you are so sad. You know what I mean? Your life is so strange. How did you grow up this divorce from your culture? And I was like, this is true. You know, this is true. You're right. Like it is, it is, I think it is sad in ways and in other ways it is completely exhilarating. Well, I, I feel like it's a superpower. I hate this term, but code switching. My code switching is way better. I think, because I had to grow up an outsider. But I want to shift gears. I want to ask, because you touched on the uncle thing. What was the, what was the first time someone called you an auntie? Did that upset you as much as it upset? <laughs> you know, let's see. You know, I did a whole series on aunties I have loved and aunties I have hated, a whole cartoon <laughs> series on that. And then, and I think that was, that was maybe the first time that people were actually calling me auntie when they were like, you're the auntie that I want. You know what I mean? It was that sort of yeah. thing, like the Twitter <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Nobody has called me that much, but a lot of times people will call me mom, which I'm always just like, get away from me. Like, <laughs> your mom. What? Yeah, like, and it's really funny because it's, it's always like, it's always like 30 year olds or 20 year olds. You know what I mean? It's always people that yeah. it's like, I could not possibly be your mom, but there's some, there's they're like, Oh my God, mom, I love you. And I'm like, you're what is happening right now? What are you doing to me? I don't like That's this too much. That yeah. is too much. That's different from being called ma'am, which the first time I heard ma'am, I got offended. I was like, wait, hold on. Like, no, come on. I was, I was, I was, I was taught to for do the that. longest e- time. Everyone's a ma'am. Everyone's a sir and a ma'am. Everyone's a ma'am when she's old enough to be a ma'am. Right? Like, no, that's straight up Southern respect. Go, no, no, no. I, I don't know. I don't I, know. I, I cringe if I don't feel, say ma'am. It makes me feel really old because you could say miss. That I think miss is more different. demeaning. Yeah, but that is way more demeaning. So, this than is ma'am. definitely a Northern Southern thing because in New Mexico, you were also taught to say ma'am. But the minute I came here and ma'amed people, they were like, stop it. What is wrong <laughs> with you? And I was like, I'm so sorry. I don't know. I don't know. I was raised by wolves. I'm not sure. You know, like, <laughs> I'm so sorry, Auntie. No, not that either. Right, right, exactly. So going back, we're talking about your childhood. What did you want to be growing up? And also related to that, what did your parents want you to be? Okay, I knew I wanted to be a writer from the minute I understood what writing was. I remember, I remember immediately making books. You know, what was that moment? Yeah, what was that moment? Oh wow, really? Yeah, because they were. I had really good handwriting. Of course, my so, dad would be so proud of, of you. Of course, you did. I know. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just want to, like, I just want to say, like, that was, like, that was, like, the greatest. That was the greatest joy of kindergarten is that my handwriting was so good that sometimes people thought it was the teachers, and wow. I loved words. And so the minute I could make words into sentences, I was folding the paper in half and into fourths to make books. It had like two words on each page, but it was like, by Mira Jacob. You know what I mean? Just here, <laughs> here is my book. Fox dog, Penny, just whatever. Bestseller, so, an automatic exactly, bestseller. Exactly. Actually, my first book that I made that was bound was called The Fox and the Crow. It was about a fox and a crow. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a poem about a fox and a crow. I mean, it was just, it was really, it was, it was tragic. I, I saw it when I was home in New Mexico last year. And I saw it and I was like, oh, mom, it's, you know, I like I was reading it. And I was like, no wonder you were scared for me. But I, yeah, I wanted to be a writer right away. And my parents right away let me know that that was a hobby. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
What do they want you to be? Well, you know, my dad, it's so funny. My dad was so conflicted in this funny way because he always had this really strong idea that you should do what you love because he loved his job. He loved his job. He was a heart surgeon. He thought it was the greatest thing that had ever happened. And he just adored going to work. So he was always saying, you should do what you love. You should do what you love. And I would say, like, I love writing. And he's like, but that one's a hobby. You know, it's more like <laughs> it was it was. And I think that to the I mean, honestly, I will tell you, they wanted me to do something in the sciences to the extent that when my first book was when my first book was published, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, the, the night before we were going to a party, right, for the book, and we we're in the cab coming home from the party for the book launch. And I said to my mom, joking, because I figured it was safe to joke. I was like, by the way, mom, I've decided to go to med school. And without like even hesitating, she goes, oh, thank God, I knew it. Like, <laughs> I was like, what? What? Oh. Also, by the way, I should tell you guys, I wasn't young. I was 40. Like, right. what, <laughs> what are you she doing She was right still now? hanging on to hope for as long as possible. <laughs> like, what do you think is happening right now? Anyway, and she was, and I, I was so, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you. You know, I got so mad and she's like, oh, don't get all bent out of shape. You know, it's just like, <laughs> like, you would make a good doctor. No, I would not. I would kill people. You know it and I know it. <laughs> Nobody wants me being their doctor at all. I had this like moment in my career where, again, yeah, parents were still holding on hope far too long for the doctor thing. And this is like after killing engineering school, going into business, working at a multinational. And dad was like, oh, you're actually pretty good at this. I don't know what you do, but sure. I guess it makes sense now. <laughs> and did you feel did you feel validated by that or were you just frustrated? I got over it. I, you know, I, my, my sister did the doctor thing and she loves it. Right. Look, I know I'm the favorite now, but <laughs> as I say to my sister who is listening to this and maybe that's why as a younger, or are you, are you younger or older in younger. terms of sibling? Okay. Yeah. I feel like the youngest we can get away with more. Like I'm literally working on all sorts of weird stuff right now after doing startup and tech and business. And like, I don't think my parents get it, but I think they've, given up on worrying because well he seems to have it figured out yeah you know mm, so mm. so i, I want to shift gears a little bit i think by now a few folks who listen to this know i'm a big fan of your work and you spent 10 years writing the sleepwalker's guide to dancing which was really well received but i actually first discovered your memoir good talk kind of by accident at the library like i wasn't seeking it out even though like i love indie comics that are nonfiction. and so i guess my question is as a writer how did you even go from writing prose where it's like this blank blank canvas where you can do whatever you want you can invent whatever world whatever character you want to this like more constrained personal i mean it's just it's not even a comic book what you did it's just like i don't know it's it's a really unique device that you use how did you go from being able to do anything to this like really tight and narrow focus because i couldn't that is, do that that is so funny when you say that because my experience of it was almost the opposite meaning I'd kind of run out of words. And 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 I should say, for people that aren't um, familiar with the book, the book kind of, the way that it's drawn is I kind of, I draw characters almost like paper dolls, and then I move them from scene to scene. So they don't really mm. change position. It's not action-packed. It's And it's always conversations. So you It's like are, a grown-up Willems to me. Yeah. There you go. Right. It's this very limited format in some ways. But for me, it felt like this incredible amount of freedom because 
And the reason that I drew it was because I didn't have to contextualize the conversations, which is most of what was exhausting me at that point, especially when you're talking about racism, right? Because the book is very much about, I mean, it's, it sounds so heavy when I say it's about racism. I don't really feel like that's the, the truth. I feel like it's about a life in a brown body. Yeah. But the thing that was really killing me in 2014, 2015, 2016 yeah. is the way that whenever I would try to talk about what was going on in my life, I was inevitably met with doubt, both by like strangers and very good friends of mine that would say like, are you sure? And it was always white people. Are you sure? I don't know. Just I think maybe, microaggression. Yeah. Like, no, no, no. Maybe, maybe I just, you know what? I wouldn't really hear it that way. Like that person saying that to me, I wouldn't take it that way. And, and I'm used to that. I've been a writer for a long time, 20 something years. So I've written plenty of stuff and I've written online a good bit and I'm used to people coming online for me and saying like, you're a liar. If you're a brown woman writing online, it's just, it's just not a great scene anyway. So it's always like, you're a liar. You're an idiot. You're doing this for attention. But I knew when what was specifically happening around the book is that my son, who is my husband's white, I'm brown, and he's somewhere between us in the color spectrum was sort of figuring out what color he was at the same time that the Ferguson protests were going on at the same time that there were protests going up and down our streets and the news was covering how many black and brown teenage boys and girls were being, you know, kind of annihilated. And so in that moment, all of that together, I wanted to write a piece about the kinds of questions he was asking me. But I knew that when I would write the sentences down, first of all, I just got tired even trying to write the sentences, like to say, my son is asking me these questions and it's really hard. And I don't know, like just to, even all of that, when I say it to you right now, I just want to like take my head off and throw it through a window. I don't want to have to do that. Yeah. And, and I just, it was so much easier just to draw us and then have the conversation just happen. Just yeah. only write the conversation. Like it just felt and like such freedom. That is something that really reading Good Talk and being that I'm a parent of mixed race children and so is Raman. So all three of us have mixed race kids. Mine are half black, half Chinese, and Raman's got a half Indian, half Chinese daughter. They are all at ages where they're asking questions. My boys are six and eight. And what were some of the, and, and you definitely touch on um, a lot of the questions that your son, you and your son were talking about. Because I mean, I find myself really pausing sometimes and not knowing exactly how to answer in a way oh, that yeah. in a way that both educates them and what they need to know but gives them context for why my answer is what it is and you've captured I mean it's just like there were moments when I was tearing up and I was like she's really getting deep into how powerful these talks are yeah and so can I mean, you can you share like some of those sure. conversations yeah. that inspired the book yeah. I mean, the first one is really the first chapter of the book, which is, so my son was obsessed with Michael Jackson, deeply yep. obsessed with Michael <laughs> yep. Jackson, in the way that like kids get obsessed with things, right? So it was like, one day he is my son, and the next day he's like, I need the sparkly socks, I need the glove, get me the fedora, and I will only ever be doing this from now on, right? So he just, and he's really physically, he could do the moves. You know, mm -hmm. he was like, it was mm -hmm. amazing. He was like a tiny Indian Jewish Michael Jackson just, <laughs> you know, dancing around the neighborhood. And he would do them for anybody. Everyone in our neighborhood knows him as the Michael Jackson kid, right? And so, but part of that was he wanted the music. And because I was like, well, I, you know what I don't want to hear is a thousand starts and stops of songs. So let's get him a record player. 
and he'll play the albums and that way he can't move the needle all over the place and drive us crazy. And I was like, I'm a genius. And, and my husband also agreed with me. He's like, you're a genius. And what we didn't realize is that if you give a kid his color, you know, 12 Michael Jackson albums and leave him alone in a room with them. And he's looking at this kind of huge size Michael Jackson face over the 15, 20, 25 year career. Yeah. He comes out with questions. So his yeah. first question, you know, he was first, it was like, is his hair like mine? Is his skin like mine? He was just trying to figure out like what about them was the same. And then he said one day he was like, mommy, is Michael Jackson, is he brown or is he white? And I was like, yeah. So, mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he is black, which means his skin is brown. And then, like, well, he turned white and he said, <laughs> He turned white and I said yeah and he said are you gonna turn white and I was like no and he said am I gonna turn white and I was like no and he goes what about daddy and I said daddy's already white and he goes but was he always um, <laughs> and I was like oh my god what have I done and so that was right it was hilarious when he asked that and also like it was hilarious in the one way and the other way I was like I have messed this up wow I've messed this up and in that night when I was sort of trying to I did try to write an essay about it and the essay wasn't, it just didn't work. Also, he, the questions got much more pointed. So that was the, the summer of Ferguson and that was everywhere on the TV. And I just want to say this because I think so often people, including my in-laws, say things like, you don't need to expose him to that as though there is another alternate world I can yeah. raise my six-year-old yeah. son in yeah. where you won't see all of the things that are around him every single day. So he was seeing it and he asked me once in this very like chipper voice on the subway, he was like, are white people afraid of brown people? And I was like, oh my God, because what do you say? And also I was raised by parents who would have unequivocally said no, whether or not they thought it was true yeah. because they just didn't want me to be afraid of America. And the way that that information actually disseminated in me was it made me feel like I was a crazy person because I knew things were happening to me. I knew that my parents were looked at in a certain way. I knew that we were outsiders in this very particular way. And they were like, nope, not happening, not happening, not happening. But yeah, we were in the assimilation bubble. Like, right. hey, don't worry right. about it. Don't right. look over right. there. These aren't right. the droids you're looking for. And if you do look over there, then you're asking for whatever bad happens to you because you are calling attention to yourself, right? Like, <laughs> like if yeah. you don't think you're different, they don't think you're different. Like, yeah, it's assimilated all costs back then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so when he asked me that, or why people are afraid of brown people, what I ended up saying to him that time was sometimes. And he huh. said, "Well, how do you know?" And I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "How do you know which ones are afraid of you?" And I said, "Oh." Well, right. Well, you don't always. And I should say that this conversation was happening on the subway and everybody was listening. It was like the end of the night. So you know what I mean? The end of the day yeah. and everybody kind of stinks and doesn't want to talk to each other. So they were just like, I just saw the whole subway car. It felt like just went. Um, and I felt really bad. We were walking home and I felt really bad. I was like, is that the, was that the wrong thing to tell him? He's six. Like, he shouldn't have to know that yet. He shouldn't have to know that yet. And yet I walked into our house and the news is the news. And, you know, like, at what age is it appropriate for yeah. a young brown or black kid to understand that white people are afraid of them? Like, do they, you know what I mean? Like, what do we, is that a needle we can even thread? Is that even possible? And why is that the, why is that the question? And then that night when I was putting him to bed, 
he said, is daddy afraid of us? Oh, God. And mm. I just shouted, no. I was like, no. And then I was like, no, no. And I went to the bathroom. Like I put him to bed and I went to the bathroom and I just was shaking. Like just trying to figure out like, what do I say? And how do I, how do I make this make sense to him? How do I make this thing that he is tapping into? He knows something is, something's going, something's weird here, right? He knows. And like, how do I tell him exactly what is weird here? Because also having a six-year-old is like having a benevolent alien. Like they're so, their <laughs> questions are just so funny, right? They're not rooted right. in anything. They're not, he's not trying to get me to say anything. He's just like, what are humans and how are birds? You know, just, he's just trying to understand the planet that we're on. And I'm trying not to scare him out of the planet that we're on, even though the planet that we're on is actually terrifying. Mm -hmm. My wife likes to tell my daughter, or she tells me, we actually try not to say this, the C word cute around my daughter, but every once in a while she'll do something and we have to like keep a straight face. Like we can't let her know this is funny. We can't let her know we think this is cute because she's in trouble for whatever the hell she just did. Mm -hmm. And afterwards she'll look at me and say, she's not going to be cute forever. And what that means, I mean, that's that's kind of a passing funny comment, but it's the judgment of the world is coming upon her at some point. Yeah. And I'd rather her find find out the hard way from us now versus mm-hmm. from someone else later. And I don't know, we, we are kind of in a bubble. We're keeping the bubble alive, but I'm worried. I mean, and Sharon, you've talked about this, like during when you were still in New York, during the Black Lives Matter protests, like your sons were hearing the chants out the window yeah. and asking you about them. Yeah, absolutely. What did you and say? it's both heartbreaking and at the same time, like this heavy responsibility, you know, to let them know. And I mean, they were saying first, first it was, mommy, do you hear that? My life matters. Hmm. And like, what do you do about that? You know, because of course your life matters, honey. You're human. Of course it does. And the fact that there are even marches for it means that there's something very wrong out there that's beyond the things that we can be doing and you need to be aware of this stuff. So it is a funny thing and kids, I mean, my six-year-old now is, the other day he claimed I was racist because I called a, a white dog a white dog. Oh, my son does <laughs> like, that to me all the time. Right. I'm like, there's a dog across the street. We saw this really beautiful white dog and he was like, mommy, that's racist. It's just a dog. And I was like, I know, I just meant that it had white fur. And he's like, oh, okay. But so they're just trying to understand all of it. They're just trying to understand what it all means. And I don't think that they've, they haven't seen firsthand yet. I don't think like overt racism, at least not to my knowledge. So it's difficult to warn them of it or even teach them about it without it happening. But to your point, it's like, I want them to understand that if it does happen or when it does happen, it's not a reflection of their own value or who they are. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah, absolutely. So Mm -hmm. your son's older now than ours are. And I hate hearing this answer when I hear tons of executives or tons, frankly, authors or artists talking. They're like, oh, yeah, I have so much faith in the next generation. They're, you know, yeah. Greta, yay. And yes, yay. But like, come on, what the fuck? We're not done yet. Like, no, we're, we're in play. We're so, but I guess the question, how is your son processing? He's older. I guess he must be like a teenager now or he's 12, approaching. Yeah, he's 12. 
He's 12. He's he's just about to overtake me in height. It's terrifying. <laughs> How did this happen? How's he processing yeah. everything that's been happening? Yeah. I mean, it's been happening for a year, but now the media is finally covering it. Like Atlanta. And like Sharon and I just like had an exasperated conversation that we aired last week or at the yeah. time of this airing of you. Like my daughter's sheltered from it. Sharon, I don't know how your kids are, but I mean, what's your son's take? He's older. He is more exposed to these things. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, when something like that happens, when something like the, the shootings that happened last week occur, I I know he's probably going to hear about it. So I usually flag him at some point during the day. Like, like if he was in school in the middle of the day and I was like, something's happening in America and we should talk about it later. And he was like, is it the shootings? And I said, yes. And he said, okay. So, you know, he's already picked up on it on social media. And then we, and then so... Like, for example, using that specific case, I have talked to him about the rise in violence against Asians. We have talked about the difference between presenting as South Asian and presenting as East Asian, right? And, you know, like, cause, and also, like, which of these situations, like, the violence is against all many different kinds of of Asians in, in all different kinds of, in all different areas of the spectrum at different mm-hmm. times, right? Mm-hmm. That is true. However, Post 9-11, coronavirus, exactly, et cetera. Right, exactly. Yeah. And but also the the dramatic uptick in the violence toward people who look quote unquote East Asian right now is something that we have to pay attention to in a very specific way, the same way that we had to pay attention to what was happening to us after 9-11. Right. And so, like, how do you do that? How do you both have the conversation where you talk about what kind of Asian you are? what kind of Asian is feeling a particular kind of strain right now, how that will inevitably come back to you. It's not like we are all separate, right? And how do you maneuver that? And how do you hold space for somebody else's pain in a moment where you are facing your own? Like all of these things were things we talked about. We also frankly talked about what a sex worker was because that Mm -hmm. was something that, you know, like I, I don't know that my parents ever had that conversation with me, but because that was part of what the news was and I had to kind of say to him you know I said the easiest way for me to explain this to you is a sex worker is a person who has sexual relationships when they have sexual relations when they work the way that I write when I work like that's just the thing that they do and this is the thing I do and and but that comes with all kinds of stigmas that we're trying to unpack right now and we're trying Mm -hmm. to kind of rethink as a society because they just shouldn't be there but and I was like, all of that said, that's why this conversation is complicated. And then you throw in the he's just had a bad day and, you know, you throw in all of the kind of rhetoric that's going on and you the have the rug sweeping, really, right? Yeah, yeah. You have a really complicated conversation. You said that your kids are a little too young to really have experienced it themselves. It's interesting because one of the things that's happening that I noticed, because he's on his own now, meaning he goes around the city with yeah. himself and his friends. And I remember the first few times that something would happen where somebody would sort of mess with him and he would come back in and it was really hard because it's like a, a child in a tall body. Mm-hmm. saying, like, why are they mean to me? And I really dread the day when he knows it's about the way he looks. Like, I don't know that anything has happened yet where he can be like, this is about the way I look. And also, I say that to you. Do you think he's going to bring that back to you? Because I didn't bring that back to my parents. Did you? I mean, I think he might just because of what I write about. 
but, but hang yeah. on. you're not going to be the right? cool parent. Mom. You're not going to be the cool parent in a few years. Oh yeah. no, no, no! Like I wouldn't think he would bring it back to me because I'm cool. I would just think he would bring it back to me only because I, I think and talk to him about race a lot. You know what I mean? Like I yeah. think he would just say right. like this is the this is like this is the yeah. thing. Okay. But you know, also by the way, I just said that to you. Like I dread the day when he knows it's about his looks. But however, you guys like. When did you know that? Like, did you know that? Because I'm I say that to you, and I'm like, oh, but you always, you never know. Like, you're always like, maybe or maybe I just suck. Like, maybe it's about me being mm. Indian, or maybe I just suck. Maybe there's something yeah. dirty and broken right. in me, and you like right. you do this sort of turning and turning around the situation a thousand times. Well, it's it's the with some exceptions, like a Biff Tannen, right? Like as a teenager, you have all of that insecurity, and honestly, as a brown teenager, you put the blame on that the the self-hating self-racism a little bit Mm -hmm. once the veneer gets pierced that oh i'm not assimilating as well as i thought i was they are calling me out they did make the slur Mm -hmm. Um, yeah Yeah. it's almost like when there are slurs or names that's a lot easier to right to deal with right because it's just over you can put it in a nice little box yeah it's like overt racism okay they called me that word they're racist. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. much more complicated. And especially being a minority female, it's really complicated too. Cause it's like, is it my gender or is it oh, my totally. race? Yeah. And is it, you know, I mean, it's so many things. I've heard putting a baseball hat on and getting ponytails helps. Sure. Someone told me that. <laughs> and yeah. Make yeah. Sure to grow and your changing my name to Tony. Yeah. 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 That's true. <laughs> then my name would be Tony, Tony. <laughs> Mira, how does your work not get you in hot water? I'm sorry. Like this last book has oh, yeah. these that's, intimate that's, conversations. I love this question. I love this question because like, I feel the, like I get in hot water sometimes from this show. Yeah. Like these, <laughs> it's, you, you've talked before how like you really pare the conversations down, right? You strip away everything because it's not a narrative. It's in this graphic format. And because of it, the conversations are, I mean, it's not just buried in an essay. It's words and pictures that are right there on the paper, staring yeah. you in the face that can be memed and Instagrammed yeah. and they are not flattering on either side of the ocean. Like we had a guest, one of my close friends who on, on, the, on this podcast ha- asked us to take one of the things he said about his grandparents off immediately. And you've got it published. Like, how do you yeah. manage that with your family? It was interesting because I, I, so, okay. So there's a few things. One is I did not show this book to, so that, so there's many things that are happening in this in this book at one time. And one of them is that you find out that my in-laws, I've been married now for almost 20 years, became avid Trump supporters. Yeah. And mm. it really wrecked our relationship in a pretty profound way that we're still trying to pick up the pieces around. And I frankly, I think there's just certain ruptures that we'll, we'll never mend. But I'll come back to that in a second. When I wrote the book... I realized at some point, I realized at some point that if I was going to write the book, I was going to be exposing myself and my entire family to something pretty horrific. And then I was like, okay, but also I'm just handling the horror all on my own. Like, it's not that this horrific situation isn't happening. I'm just the one that is being torn up inside out by this every day. All I'm doing is naming the pain. And it's wonderful that they have never gotten to feel this pain. That must be delightful for them. But I'm not like making something up here. I'm just saying this thing that you do when you support this virulent racist who is going to inevitably bring harm to me and my community and the grandson that you love more than anything in this world, 
when you do this, it breaks my fucking heart, right? That thing, when I was writing that part of it, I remember saying to my husband at some point, if I write this book, it's really going to, it's really going to hurt. Like it's going to hurt, it's going to hurt our families and it's going to hurt us. It's going to hurt. And, and at first he was like, what the hell? What the hell? Like, really? Wait, what, you know, like, what do you, what do you mean? And I was like, because if I write the truth, Jed, the truth is really, it's not a comfortable truth. And we, and he said, you know, if you want to make, if you want to make my parents look like monsters, it, you know, it's not going to be hard for you. And, and I said, I am not at all afraid of like, I don't need to, I'm not afraid of, cause he was sort of like, you know, you could, you could put down any series of things and my parents will just look like monsters. And I said, no, I am not afraid about what would happen if I lied about your parents. Jed, I'm worried about what would happen if I tell the truth. And, and we kind of were up, it was three in the morning and we were up kind of wild eyed and, and we finally, you know, and finally he got to this place where he was like, you know, you just, you're just going to have to tell the truth. You're just going to have to tell your truth. Like, that's the thing that you need to do. And then we'll just have to deal with whatever the fallout is. What was the, I mean, what was the fallout? I mean, yeah, are you, was... are you the angry brown daughter-in-law now who, who put all the family laundry out in a book? I'm sure I am for a certain part of the white family. I don't think, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about this too, is that because people are so used to positioning themselves around whiteness, even Indians, right, are really yeah. used to positioning themselves around whiteness that everybody sort of wrings their hands and it's like, oh, my God, what will the white people do now? But the other part of it is that it was tremendously painful for my family that my in-laws made this decision, right? Mm -hmm. It hurt my family, my mother, my brother, my Yeah, cousin. they didn't have to write a book. They didn't have to write a book. Yeah. You know, like that was it was really awful for all of us. So. The way that it went was I didn't give them the book until I was done writing it. And then also I didn't give them the book until I'd done this really hard edit, which I kind of wished I would have had like ayahuasca to do it or something. But basically I asked myself <laughs> with every single scene, I asked myself if I had written it for clarity or for vindication. Hmm. And then I had to just meditate on that. And if it was for vindication, no matter how badly I wanted it to be there, I would cut it. Hmm. And so you're saying there's a director's cut. No, I'm sorry. Ex a four no, hour long it. version of it. <laughs> exactly. I cut it because mm -hmm. the part that's hard is not that the part that's hard is not that they're monsters. It's that they love me. That's the part that hurts the most. Hmm. And if I make them into monsters, anyone can like turn someone into a monster on Twitter and have a great flood of emotion about how good they are at filleting the monster. It's mm -hmm. so easy. Mm -hmm. But the the much more painful thing and the thing that I think is true, and I th I'm sure you have been up against it, I know I have been up against it, is that people that love me will do this shit to me anyway. So like, what do you do with that? What's amazing about that is it's not, we all have that. Like it's, I could show you screenshots of WhatsApp conversations with my Indian family, right? Like over the course of the summer, Hassan Minaj does like a really good, did a really good piece right before a show went off the air about that. And it's like, the, both things can be true at the same time, right? They can have these feelings 
and they can be such an important part of your life. Yeah. And yeah. and that's the friction is the pain. Right. The friction is the pain. And also that's also to me where the resistance, like the real resistance lies. Right. Because I think what certainly what the last four years have done to many of us is make hope a dirty word for very real reasons. Right. There has to be so much more work than hope, but also just in the way that to do that work, you do have to have some level of hope. It can't just be drudgery and sadness and terror. You have to allow yourself joy in certain areas. And I think for me, so much of it became, if I write this thing, I am still going to allow for the possibility that at some point they might rethink how they are. At hmm. some point they might. It's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Maybe it will never happen in my lifetime. Maybe, in fact, the thing that's going to happen is that the grandkids of the people who are alive right now will read mm. this and be like, wow, she was in the shit. Like, I, I imagine, I hope if the world goes anywhere in near the direction that I would like it to go, I hope that it will just be so obvious in generations what I was up against and what I was dealing with. And maybe they'll be like, oh, that was that was that is a, those a, people at the turn yeah. of the century <laughs> exactly or no like our family really had a hard time with this yeah. right like my family right. had a really hard time with this because that's what i'm dealing with right now is you know what does my family have a hard time with yeah. what do my how do we contribute to this system in america like what did we do as the quote model minority how did we separate ourselves from other people of color what did we tell ourselves to do that like how do we undo this great chasm yeah. What do your husband and your son think about your work? Okay. Right now, let me answer with my son first, because right now I think he is still young enough and I'm still enough of like more of an authority figure at this moment that <laughs> that I think he's Clock sort of sticking, like, Mira. Yeah, exactly. I think generally we have very good conversations about this occasionally. He's like, I don't think that way, but I think we tend to be in sync about a lot of things. I imagine that will not be true by next year at this time. And I and I did say to him when I was making the book, because I was he was the only person who I had him read his parts and I read them to him actually. And I said, if you want me to change anything, I'll change it or I'll cut it. Or I will, you know, I won't have this chapter in because he's a kid. And I felt like it was the only, it was just the, the most fair way that I could think of to do this. That said, I, I have no doubt that he's going to change his mind. I also am sort of prepared for the fact that at some point he might just be pissed at me for writing it, right? Yeah. Like, it's hard. These were his grandparents. It's, mm -hmm. it's hard. And I hope that at some point after that, he might realize like how much... I love him and how much I was writing this book, not just for me, but for him to, to try to get the world better for him, to try to get the people that love him to own that love and to, and to stand up for it. That's, so that's him. That's the, um, my husband is a documentary filmmaker. So we have a really intense creative bond we workshop all of our stuff. I mean, kind of, you know, like on the fly. I always look at his movies. He always looks at my work. We give each other critique quite often. This was a really hard one because I wasn't asking for his critique. I was saying, I'm going to do this and this is what this looks like. 
and I handed it to him saying, this is what this is. And he said back to me, yeah, I don't think I get a say in this one. Like, Hmm. I think this is just yours. It doesn't matter if I disagree with the way you've put some of the conversations. It doesn't matter. This is yours. And it just has to be yours. And I think also because we're always, all of us are constantly in this learning curve. I think sometimes the things to him that sound extremely radical coming out of my mouth, I feel like, you know, two or three years later, he's like, yeah, that was right. You know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you were right about that. All right. Fine. Yeah. like something that's indicative of that is towards the end of the book, and this doesn't really spoil anything for people, but like the argument you guys had about the NPR thing. Yeah, right. Like that's, that, I mean, the whole thing is real, but that felt like such a real husband-wife argument. Not, never mind even like the thing that predicated the argument, but the, you're not even seeing things from my worldview right now. And yes. I've, I've had those. Yeah. And it's almost like, I can't even seek to understand. I'm just going to let you go with this. And he, I think he did that in that moment. I was like, good man. I remember saying that. Like, <laughs> so you know what was so funny about that one? That was the one that I was probably n- most nervous about writing that, about actually putting out because I thought that the the thing that you kind of get the chorus of people that hate you in your brain when you're really mm-hmm, nervous mm-hmm, about writing mm-hmm. something. And the chorus of people that hate me in my brain were like, how dare you feel upset about somebody on NPR getting something wrong about you. Oh, if only all of us could feel so yeah, entitled right. to be, you know, just those people. Yeah. And, and so those people were in my brain, but also, and I, and I wrote the whole scene and I showed it to him thinking he was going to be upset about how real I got in it, mm-hmm. how I really just said what he said. And was he going to be defensive about it? And like, please don't put that up and whatever. And he read the whole thing and he's like, yeah, I mean, the thing I was trying to say is that you're just really good, you know, like you're just a good. And I was like, oh, my God, are we going to have the same fight word for word? And he's like, no, because I think you don't understand. I just think you're really great. And I was like, oh, we are. We are going to have the same fight. It was amazing. It was amazing that we started going down the exact same path toward that fight. And, and it was word for word the same thing. And also that if I still like when I bring it up with him, he's like, I understand what you're saying. I will also just say, I think you're a really good. Bri-. I'm like, okay, all right. <laughs> Save that one for like 20 years from now. Exactly. Right. Exactly. exactly. Well, okay. So your first book, uh, which is the second book of yours that I read, it feels, and this is my interpretation, right? Even though it's fictional, it's rooted in some of your history and your truth. So it felt like this much more like internal discovery. And the second book, while very personal and, you know, just unearths all of these personal conversations, was a much more externally focused thing, things the world needed to hear and read. Where do you go from here? Like, what is, yeah, I just, I'm, I will fanboy for one second. Like, what, what's next? What's the next thing that I can read? So I am, it's so funny because I just, I just started writing a bunch of things again. It's like some sort of damn broke and I and I've been writing like crazy right now. I'm working on a new novel. I'm working on a couple short stories and I'm also working on the televised version of Good Talk. I'm sort of working on a pilot for that. Oh wow. And, That's and so, so, yeah. so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I'm I am excited about it. I feel like just don't launch a podcast, Mira, because then I'll have to quit. And you know, like <laughs> Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I, don't worry, don't worry. I'm I'm terrible on radio. I'm terrible on a podcast. But I will say one of the things that I really love is trying something new. Yeah, like always yeah. learning mm-hmm. something new, which I'm sure you guys had to learn how to do this. Like there's always something really wild about breaking a form yeah. and sort of seeing how like the specific kind of fractures that you will put into it 
feels really exciting to me. So when I'm writing the screenplay, that's something that's coming up a lot. And also with the novel, I'm just trying a different thing than I have before. I don't know if it'll work or not, but I'm just kind of trying a different structure than I ever have. And, and something about that feels, you know, a person told me after my first book, I had these sort of diehard fans for that book who were really unhappy that it ended. And so when I went on tours, people would say, I really want the sequel. When is the sequel coming what? out? Which is, I know. Which is You're like, that, <laughs> I'm living it. <laughs> like, I mean, it was just, it was hilarious. Cause I was like, almost nobody survives that book. It's amazing that you want a sequel, but okay. And, and it really started locking me up also because as a, brown person who's in the publishing industry you get very locked up by this idea of what do the readers want from me and if I can't Mm, deliver that same mm. thing again will they you know Mm. just this whole yeah this whole like they only want me for one thing and am I going to give them the same thing am I going to give them the butter chicken again you know whatever (laughs) anyway just do do what Jumpa Lahiri does and learn to write in Italian you know exactly yeah that's 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 easy easy. I so I so relate to that though right you just want to do something different so When that was happening, I had a friend who was an architect who said, yeah, when I finish a project, what I like to do is I like to imagine my kind of creative conscience as a topographical map. And I think of my project as in one quadrant, and I like to think of what is in the the quadrant diagonal to me and like go there. And he's like, so it's not even the things that you can see the edges of. It's like, what is the thing you can't even see yet? And it felt so good to think of it that way, like that's such an enormously freeing way to mm-hmm. think of how to put work into the world. Like just go to the quadrant. You you don't know. Go to the thing you can't even see the edges of and and gun hard for that place. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's how I got to Good Talk. So yeah, I'm just sort of gunning hard in, in all directions right now. So great. If you could tell your past self something, so maybe Tony from way back when, what advice would you give them? Mm. Hmm. I think I think one of the things that was hardest for me was surviving the first 20 years of my writing career in which I sent out so many submissions and inevitably got back these letters that were like this is too Indian and it's also not Indian enough and it was so painful because I would see people all around me succeeding and then it got to be the point where like people much younger than me were getting work published and I went from being like in my 20s to in my 30s to in my late 30s still no book out and just feeling like the world was passing me by yeah but I just kept showing up I just kept showing up for the work because because it is my love it is the thing I'm supposed to be doing. And even if nobody was going to buy it, I was going to show up for it. And I think I would whisper to that younger self, just keep showing up for the work. Because the truth is, if I wouldn't have shown up for 10 years of a novel that nobody asked for and nobody was looking for, it would never have gotten published. I never would have done good talk. I never would be living this life. If I would have given myself the shelf life that everybody else gives an Indian woman, I would have expired before they could ever see me because that is actually where they want me. And I would say to that younger person, like, 
don't let anybody tell you what your shelf life is. They have no idea what you're capable of. They have no idea. Wow. You are such an inspiration. I told myself I wasn't going to fangirl over you, but I can't, I can't help it, Mira. (laughs) (laughs) You're so amazing. And we've covered, we've covered a lot and we so appreciate everything you've shared with us. At the end of every uh, talk that we have, we do a speed round with our guests. Are you ready for speed round? Oh boy. Oh my God. Okay. Let's do it. (laughs) No one's ever ready for speed round. (laughs) No one is ever ready. I think you are though. I have faith in you. What's one thing about you that no one expects? Uh, I know how to fly a plane. What? You're even cooler than I thought. That's so awesome. It's just my dad. I grew up in the desert. My dad had a real fondness for planes. And so when I was little, we took flying lessons together and I flew all over the desert with him. That's so great. Little. I say I make it sound like I was five. I wasn't five. <laughs> I wasn't like a five-year-old flying a plane, people. Okay. What's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Oh, my God. There are, honestly, like that. it's hilarious that you asked me that because I feel like that, that – what isn't one? I feel like I relate to everybody. One of the ones that I really – I still sort of love because it helped me be who I was in the moment and my mother took me to see it of all people was Heather's. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because I was having such a hard time like just finding anybody that was like me, you know, and I was so prickly and so just tortured. And my mom took me to see that movie. And I just remember being like, there's a place for you. It will probably not be a person who is next to you, but it might be in the thing that they make. You will find a place with the things that other people make. Does that make sense? What I love is that your mom took you to see that. I know. (laughs) Yeah. My mom is such a badass. She also took me to see Longtime Companion. My mom was like, we are going to be culturally educated here in the middle of the (laughs) desert. (laughs) I love that. So speaking of mom, what's your favorite mom dish? Mm. Oh my God. Like if my mom were here, what would I have her make me right now? Yeah. Okay. So for sure. Okay. I would like a masala dosha, but I want it specifically with her tomato chutney, which is so amazing. And also she does this beetroot chutney, which I love, which is also, you know, obviously the coconut chutney is always a great thing with a masala dosa, but I (laughs) would really, okay. I would go masala dosa with all the chutneys. And then, because this is my dream, I would also like pudding potato and then I would like Ras Malai for dessert. Yum. That's when, when my, the first time I took, I don't know if she was my wife or girlfriend at the time, but I took her home and mom made all the favorites, right? And I'm North Indian. Oh. So it was all the fried bread all weekend. And I took oh. a mellow mushroom and a cracker barrel. But like, my wife was like, how did you survive eating this all the time? <laughs> I was like, Your whole life. it was all lentils and rice. Trust me. I never got this shit. <laughs> so great. Oh and so Mira, you're you're a mom, so I want to ask you this too. What is your like go-to mom dish that you make at home? Oh, see, I think the one that the one that I've been going to lately, I cook a lot. I used to cook for a living. The one that I've been going to lately is I'm doing a rosemary garlic pork loin with a green chili apple chutney, and it really works. All the things really work in it. Hmm. Sorry, is that what he's going to say on this podcast in 20 years? Is that the mom dish he's going to play? The thing that he's going to say? I don't know. Should we ask him like what his favorite mom dish is? (laughs) Like, Secure, what's your favorite thing I make? Oh, sorry. He's in Hebrew school. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What is your least favorite food? Like, what do you have veto rights on, like, not having to eat? 
Oh my god. Okay, so I hate all of the weird meat and potatoey things that can happen to English and American cuisine. So like I'm not down with a pot roast. I don't really feel great about mashed potatoes. Like I understand some people think they are amazing. They're just not for me. Those are fighting um, words, Mira. Those are fighting <laughs> words. It's just not it's just not for me. All of the things and or like really when people overcook a vegetable, I just want to go and murder them in their sleep. I don't <laughs> think there's any good reason for that. Do you know what I mean That's though, fair. right? Like you should yeah. never overcook a vegetable. That's a yeah. terrible no, idea. You just yeah. kill it. I mean, I've done that where like something turns yellow that was <gasps> supposed to be green. Like, yes, yes definitely. Right. Spinach and other things. Oh. The green bean, right? I mean, it's just it's upsetting yeah. what happens to green beans. <laughs> it's it's really and they should the be casserole, people. They should be casserole. Oh my god. It's so true. See, I'm it's terrified so true. of a casserole. I am terrified of a casserole. I'm literally wearing <laughs> a green bean casserole shirt. My sister bought me for Christmas today. Because oh you love goodness. it that much. You love a, you love a green bean casserole. Do you do yeah. the crunchy onions with them? Of course. Ramen? That's Come the part on. I like. I yeah. won't eat only exactly. the crunchy onions. That's all I need. <laughs> yeah. yeah, me too. Spoken That's like my a favorite brown person. <laughs> the rest of it's just mushy and weird. Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? <sighs> okay, so I did get to interview... Zadie Smith last year, and she would have been probably one of my number one choices. But I think at this point, it's got to be, I, of course, I'm going to go for writers. I apologize. I'm just that nerd. But I think at this point, it's, it's Arundhati Roy. Do you guys know her work? Yeah. 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 Good choice. I just feel like she is ferociously smart. And I love how unapologetic she has been for her in her entire career and her incredible mind. I just, I really feel like there is something about her that is so solid and thoughtful and fearless. And I just, yeah, I'd like to, I would really like to talk to her about how do you, how do you get that way? Cause I'm Syrian Christian and I got the other genes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mira, last question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Hmm. I mean, the modern is a really interesting part of it, right? Because the truth is that we are all kind of carrying our ancestors with us, our ancestors and their traumas and the diasporas. Like there's something really interesting about what does it mean to step into the present day with all of those stories. And I think if anything, for me specifically, what it means to be a modern minority is to show up with a way to hold on to all of those stories and find a way to keep them going in the world. If I could choose to do anything with my life, that's what I would choose to do because that to me is the way that you stay rooted with who you are and you also can kind of think about the possibilities of what you can become. That's a terrible answer. I'm sorry. It's so... I, it's, I like the simplicity. It, I mean, it's keep on keeping on because... It's kind of like, what else are you going to do? Or if you don't, then what's the point? Like, uh, I'm struggling. Yeah, this- I, I like asking this question because I don't know the answer still, you know? And I've, I'm literally, this podcast crowdsources that for me. It's interesting because it's also, because, right, it's not just what does it mean to be a minority? It's like, what does it mean to meet this time, mm-hmm. right? With your, mm-hmm. yeah, with with this exterior, with this specific shell with this kind of community and so much of the work that I have been doing has been around around you know kind of 
ancestral trauma and how do you and how do we react in the face of these things? Like what in us gets pinged and how do we kind of forward that into an awkward ass conversation that you have with your mother-in-law at two in the morning? Like that to me is where the real fire lies. 100,000%. Mira, just thank you so much for coming on the show. But more importantly, thank you for just doing what you're doing. It it matters. And it's really mattered to me in the past few years, which have been rough. And I, I know it means a lot for a lot of people. It's so wonderful to hear. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.